0: Hello, welcome to the Elseg Sustainable Growth podcast where we talk to leading experts on topics that intersect sustainability and finance. I'm Jane Goodland and this week I'm talking to Yako Karashi who is the global head of sustainable investment research here at Elseg. Yako's team conducts some great research and we thought that the most recent piece deserved a conversation as it reveals some fascinating facts about scope 3 emissions and comes up with a solution to enhance our reporting of this very important part of our collective carbon footprint. But before we listen to the conversation, a quick reminder to follow us so you don't miss any future episodes. And also don't forget to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other platform you use. Right, let's find out more about this new research. Well, hello, Yako. Thank you so much for joining us here on the LSEG Sustainable Growth Podcast. It's really nice to see an LSEG face here.
1: Great to be here, Jane.
0: And now we are here to talk about a piece of new research that you and your team have just published, which is called Scope for Improvement, Solving the Scope 3 Conundrum. But before we get into the detail of that paper and that research, can you just tell us a little bit more about your role and uh, the work that your team does here?
1: I'm the global head of sustainable investment research here at LSEC. And um, I head up a team of sustainability experts and data scientists dotted around the globe. And um, we basically do three different things. So one is that we write research like the scope three report that we're discussing today, which helps us to guide our product development here at LSEC in the sustainable finance space. We also develop prototypes of new models or data sets or analytics. So the prototype for the LSEC Scope 3 data, which underlies this report, was originally developed by the same experts and data scientists that wrote the piece. And finally, we also spent a lot of time discussing these issues with clients and other stakeholders. So the idea for this report actually came from some questions on Scope 3 that we got from BlackRock at the time. And that inspired us to then put this report together for other clients too.
0: Interesting. Okay. So before we get into the detail of the report, let's make sure that we've got a very clear understanding about what we mean by Scope 3 emissions. And I'm sure it's a a phrase that many of us hear and see written, but let's get super clear about what do we mean by Scope 3 emissions? What are they? Where do they come from? Give us the insights
1: So scope three emissions are the emissions that occur outside of the operational control of the company, which we would typically refer to as scope one emissions, and they also exclude the energy related emissions which are typically captured under the scope two emissions. So everything else is really scope three. So what does that mean? If you are a smartphone manufacturer, you may have the emissions that occur during the manufacturing process and the distribution and the sales. But then you also have the emissions that happened before the smartphone was produced, which are embedded in the materials. So when plastics and steel and glass were extracted and and, and put together, but then you also have downstream emissions that occur during the use phase. So, you know, when you are charging your mobile phone, that contributes to the scope three emissions of the manufacturer, or also if you... Engage in energy-intensive data usage, for example.
0: And there are other examples of that you can bring it to life as well. What about a car, for example? Yeah, Yeah. car
1: companies is another great example, right? So they produce obviously emissions while they produce the vehicle. They also have those upstream emissions from the materials that they use in the vehicle. But there is also these really important downstream emissions that occur when the car is driving around. And uh, Actually for a car, most of the emissions come from that use phase and that might be linked to the tailpipe emissions if you're driving a combustion engine car or it might be linked to the power generation uh, that you use to to charge your electric vehicle, for example. And they can be hugely different depending on your driving behaviour, what kind of weight your car has or what type of car it is. So that makes them important. The Greenhouse Gas Protocol actually cuts the uh, scope three emissions into 15 different categories across upstream and downstream. So uh, yeah, that's where a lot of complexity comes in.
0: And that greenhouse gas protocol is really sort of almost like the Bible, isn't it, for categorization of emissions, both one, two and three. But that varies hugely across different sectors, doesn't it? As you've just kind of illustrated with the examples of the phone or the car that you do in the paper as well. So Really, it's becoming clear that the vast majority of our carbon footprint typically comes from Scope 3 emissions. So is that why it's so important to measure it?
1: So one, as you say, in most sectors, actually, uh, Scope 3 emissions are the bulk of the emissions. Uh, So about 80% on, on average. In some sectors, like, for example, the auto industry, but also the oil and gas sector, it doesn't really make sense to look at the carbon footprint of the company without looking at the scope three emissions. So if you're an oil and gas producer and you have some emissions that occur in the production of the oil and gas, but actually the, the bulk of it will occur when when you combust the oil and gas at the end of the process. So for that, it's really important that we understand not only the scope one and two emissions, but also the scope three emissions. The problem is that we don't often have good data on that. And that's really at the heart of this report and what we call the Scope 3 conundrum, that on the one side, Scope 3 emissions are really important. On the other side, we don't really have great data available. So there's lots of missing data and the data that we do have is often very volatile and and, and hard to compare.
0: And that's important because effectively that climate risk ultimately could affect a company's overall profitability in the long term or their prospects, their value creation long term, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, companies that produce a lot of scope three emissions may face certain transition risk, right? If they're relying on very carbon intensive inputs in their products, or if their products will generate a lot of emissions once they go into the use phase, then there will be pressure to find alternatives for that, right? And the car company, is is a great example here. If you're producing combustion engines and you have a huge scope three footprint because of that, that creates risks as people then may want to switch to to lower carbon alternatives.
0: Okay, so now as you describe in the paper, you and your team conducted this research about the different categories of scope three emissions and really kind of looked at the materiality of those different categories to different sectors. Tell me a bit more about that research. How did you go about it? And what did you find?
1: So one of the key points that we're making is that while you have these 15 different categories, actually for most companies, just two or three main categories cover the bulk of their emissions. And the way that we did this was to look at over 4,000 companies in the FTSE oil world. So these are large and medium-sized companies in, in uh, developed and emerging economies. And we looked at the scope three disclosures that they made. Now many companies don't don't disclose anything, but those companies that do disclose data may do that on one or two or three categories, but they rarely cover all of the fifteen. And so what we did in each sector, we calculated what we call a carbon intensity. So we looked at, okay, per dollar of product in that sector, how much scope three, how many tons of scope three emissions are 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 being being generated. And so we can see, even though we don't have data from everyone on everything, we can see in each sector what are those most material categories and how much they make up of that overall carbon footprint of the company. And so what we find is that actually, on average, the top two categories in each sector make up more than 80% of, of Scope 2 emissions in that sector on average. And so that's what we describe as the most material Scope 3 emissions.
0: And your research also found that some companies aren't reporting those, those categories which are most material to their sector, which is quite relevant really. If you're an investor looking to understand the full picture of a company's carbon footprint and those categories are emitted that can be quite a big deal, right? So why is it so important then when we're thinking through these categories? How does this come into play in terms of these kind of new reporting standards and regulations? Because, and and I'm curious to know who decides which categories to report or not? Do the companies decide themselves which categories they report or is there some sort of guidance out there? What do we see coming through?
1: So Jane, I think, You sounded a little bit confused there. And actually, (laughs) that's exactly what our data shows. Companies are confused. So we see a lot of adjustments in reporting. So they may report on some categories in, 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 in some years. And then the next year, you pick up the annual report. And it's different scope three categories that's been reported on. But often, we find that companies are, like you said, not necessarily reporting on the most material stuff. Actually, less than half of the companies that disclose any scope three data disclose the most material categories. And that's a huge problem. So the most common category that companies disclose is actually probably the least material scope three category, business travel. And and, and they do that often because it's it's easiest to measure right? You have that data in the company, whereas there might be other stuff like purchase goods and services, which might be much, much more material, but you may have less data available um, and you may not be so sure how you're going to go about the measurement. So what we see is that you see a lot of the switching of categories and that causes a huge amount of volatility in in the actually disclosed data. And that also means, you know, it's that data that feeds also the estimation models that, that people in the industry use. And so that causes also volatility in those estimates. So, what we're saying is that it's incredibly important that there is clearer guidance about what companies should report on. And that helps the companies and makes it easier for the companies to report. But it also means that we will get much, much better data.
0: So, Yakai, why do you think that companies aren't reporting consistently? Is this intentional or is this something else?
1: Well, I think there's a few things at play. One is that the reporting practices are uh, developing incredibly rapidly in this space. Companies are hiring uh, people to to help with the reporting, bringing uh, in external experts around this. And so as the, the reporting improves you know, you may then decide that actually here's a category that we didn't cover, but that's actually quite important and bring that in. But there may also be an element of greenwashing. And and we've seen that in some, some industries where we know that scope three is important. And companies may have been quite reluctant to put that data out because it may not look great. And so that's really a reason why we need these clearer standards to show companies what's most material and then also get that more consistent, higher quality data out.
0: So we've got the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, we've got our 15 categories of scope three emissions, and we're starting to realise that there's certain categories which are kind of more important than others for certain sectors. Why is it so important that we get this right and we get consistency
1: across the board? There's a number of reasons for that. For companies, it's really important that they get better guidance and a clearer message on which categories to report on in their sectors. And that will also help to uh, improve the data quality. So when companies actually consistently report on the most material categories, we see actually in the data that quality of the data becomes much better. It's much less volatile and much more more reliable. But it's also important because scope 3 reporting is now becoming mandatory. In the EU, in the UK, in Japan, in California, regulators have all announced that scope 3 reporting will become mandatory for for companies. And so we will see this deluge of scope three data coming our way. But it's very important that we have this materiality question sorted out. And it it really can be a win-win for companies and investors. On the one hand, the reporting burden goes down because companies understand better what categories to report on. And on the other hand, investors get more material and more reliable data on this.
0: And so we know that uh, well, not all companies are reporting the material categories, So, so that's obviously a data gap, and you've talked about data quality as well. And when it comes to the reporting guidelines, we see that there isn't consistency across those either, is there? So, you know, TCFD are talking about disclosing the appropriate emissions, and whereas ISSB is talking about materiality. So this need to get consistency in the rules seems really, really important, right?
1: Well... I guess there is consistency in the rules in the sense that all of the standards out there, as well as the regulations that we're seeing, they're saying, well, disclose what is most significant or material. What is lacking is the guidance to work out, well, what really should be considered as material. There is some high-level principles around that in the greenhouse gas protocol, but there's not really a kind of a practical how-to guide. If you're a company in, in, in sector X, what categories should you make you a starting point in your reporting. So that's why we think it's quite important that standard setters become a little bit more prescriptive around that. And that should help the companies and that should also help the market by producing this more reliable, more comparable data.
0: So how should investors be thinking about the contents of your paper? Should they be asking for different information than they currently get from companies or what should they be asking?
1: So there's a couple of points here. So one is that this approach that we're suggesting in the paper actually gives investors a very useful rule of thumb on trying to decide, well, this scope three data that I'm looking at, is that actually covering the most material categories? And and it allows them also then to, to monitor that data quality in, in, in a different way. It's also, for example, in, in the corporate engagement, you can go to the companies and say, well, in your sector, category three or five or whatever it is, seems to be very material, but you're not reporting on that. Why is that? So, so there's really a few, a few angles for investors here.
0: Yeah, I think that would be really helpful for investors. Uh, that rule of thumb, I think, is a very practical way in which they can use the information. So thinking forward, the paper has been published. What now? What do you do with the research?
1: So we've actually had a great reception. It's been picked up in the press. Um, we've had lots of questions from clients and investors around uh, around this, trying to understand that research better and wanting to know more about the data behind it. We've been speaking with the Greenhouse Gas Protocol about this, uh, uh, so the guys that actually make the rules on, 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 on these disclosures. And we also have a great webinar coming up where we're discussing the research together with CDP and the ISSB and investors to really get a shared understanding of what next steps around scope three look like and this type of research can end up being very useful for the market. We actually did a couple of years ago a report on scope one and two and there was an interview with Gary Gensley last week in the in the Financial Times and and he's quoting data out of that report. So it is really something that hopefully supports the market in developing the standards around this, um, helps issuers to figure out what, what, what they should be reporting on and helps investors as well to, to make sense of, of of the Scope 3 data that they're using.
0: Well, that's really fascinating, Yako. I'm afraid it's all we've got time for at the moment, but it really is quite fascinating, the research that's coming out of your team and, and really looking at kind of the impact that it can have. So thank you again for sharing the insights and telling us about your research. Thanks again.
1: Thanks so much, Jane. It was great to chat.
0: So that's it for this episode of the LSEG Sustainable Growth Podcast. And what a fascinating chat it was. Big thanks to Yako for sharing his research with us, which if you're interested, you can find the paper free of charge on lseg.com. And the link is also in the show notes. If you've got questions, comments, or someone you'd like us to talk to, then do get in touch by email at fmt@elseg.com. That's all from me, but watch out for the next episode very soon.